Amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus, continuing in our study through this glorious book. And it's incredible how what we sang today, what we've been thinking on, and even what the church globally is thinking on now as we enter into a season historically called Advent. Did you know that the Christian church has celebrated uh, the birth of Jesus, one, in one sense, every Sunday of every week, all year long. But in another sense, we put special emphasis on that in the four or so weeks leading up to Christmas in a season the church has called Advent. And as we look and continue through the book of Exodus, we'll see that God has placed us in particular passages over the next several weeks to help us better think on the truth of Advent, that Jesus has come to redeem us from our sins, just as he redeemed the people of Egypt out of slavery in Egypt. He did these glorious signs and wonders, ten plagues, he parted the Red Sea. And since they had been redeemed, Exodus isn't just here to show us what the people had been redeemed from, but what they were redeemed for. Not just the slavery they were brought out of, but what it means to be purchased with a purpose by God. If you remember chapter 13, we saw that the people were redeemed in order that they might be consecrated, set apart for God. That our time, talents, and treasures, really our whole life, might be His. We belong to Him now. Chapter 14, along with having the Red Sea parting, we saw that the people were redeemed in order that we might fear God. That fear and faith, when properly placed and properly understood, are not enemies, but friends of true faith. And last week, we saw the first ever worship song. We saw that all of God's people are part of the worship team, right? We've all joined the choir. We were all saved to sing praises to our glorious God. And we're going to pick up where we left off at Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. And we got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm not going to necessarily read all the verses we're going to cover today. But we are going to look at this next section that begins. And the theme remains the same, that the people of God have been purchased for a purpose. This time we see this central point that God's people were saved to trust. That we were saved in order that we might trust God. We get a taste now of what it was like to wander from the Red Sea to Sinai. What it was like to wander through the desert. And as we do that, we'll notice there's a few words that really are repeated in Exodus 15 to 17. The word grumbling is going to appear nine times. The people grumbled on their road trip through the wilderness. And we're going to see three times the word test appear. Chapter 15, verse 25 chapter 16, verse 4, and chapter 17, verse 7. Each of the chapters is going to talk about the Lord testing His people. In the wilderness wandering, they were tested on their trust of the Lord, whether they would trust Him or whether they would grumble against Him. And I want us to understand that God's testing isn't out of cruelty. It's not like God is sitting back 
sort of in heaven just waiting for his people to fail or like he's holding the football and he knows Charlie Brown's about to come and kick it and he's going to pull it away, right? That's not how God tests us. That isn't his heart. This was a trial, a test out of love in order to reveal the reality of their hearts that they might grow in their faith. Trial by fire in order to build a stronger trust. Parents understand this. Once your child begins to walk, there's a point where you're going to have to let them walk on their own, and they might with their big heads kind of fall over a little bit, right? But if they don't begin to walk, they're never going to run, right? Or riding the bike. Sometimes you got to let go a little bit and let them ride the bike a little further to figure it out. Or imagine, again, the parents here understand the first time you let them drive. I don't know whether that was a test on the parent or a test, or a test on the child or a test on the parent, right? And then they move out on their own. Life is full of tests. And even the life of faith has tests in it as well. And Exodus 15 to 17 has three trials of the people in the wilderness. A trial of water, a trial for food, and then a trial for water again. We're going to look at the first two in chapter 15 and 16 this morning. God is going to test His people to teach them how to trust. And as they come into the wilderness, they're going to see that walking with God is not always a cakewalk. Look, look with me, chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. In the desert of Shur, the people were taught to trust God's power to save. They were told, they were taught here how to trust God's power to save. They'd wandered in the wilderness. And friends, we all know the desert is dry, right? Water isn't abundant. And they had gone three days now without water. They probably had used up a lot of their reserves, And they finally get to a body of water. Imagine the relief. We finally found it. They drink of it. And it's bitter. It was probably salt water of some sort. Friends, it's like going through the drive-thru. You've ordered that Coke that you really have just been dying for. And it ends up being diet. Friends, it was gross in the most severe way. That's right. That's right. They couldn't drink that. And they began to grumble against Moses and ultimately against the Lord. This was a serious situation, wasn't it? 
They're in the middle of nowhere. There's families with kids, no water in sight, many likely thirsty. Remember, they didn't have drive-throughs and gas stations you could just go through. We're tempted to read this text and be very hard on the Israelites, but I know I'm prone to grumble over far less than they're grumbling here, right? They grumbled to Moses, and Moses responds the right way. He responds to the people's grumbling with a prayer to God. He cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and it became sweet. Some have tried to have very naturalistic explanations of this going, well, you know, there actually is a tree that if you throw into the water, it can take up the salt contents. And and maybe there is some truth to some of that. But ultimately, the point that we need to see is that God was performing a miracle to rescue his people. He was displaying his power to save Remember that water, at least in the book of Exodus, was always a place where God saved his people. Remember back in Exodus chapter 2, baby Moses being rescued from the hands of the wicked Pharaoh was put in a tiny little ark in the Nile and sent down the river and he was saved from death. Remember that God turned water of the Nile into blood in the plagues and that God had just rescued them through the Red Sea. Here's the point. If God could save them through water before, then He can save them through water again. The people needed to trust God's power to save. If He could bring them through the waters of the Red Sea, friends, some bitter salt water has nothing on His power. And the lesson for the people was to trust God and obey His commandments. Look again at verse 25. And there he cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord your healer. Notice he says, I promise to save you from the diseases and the plagues of the Egyptians. If you'll trust me, I'll be your healer. And he illustrates in this what it looks like to trust the Lord. He says, trusting me looks like diligently listening to my voice. Parents, you understand this. There is listening and then there's diligently listening. There is, yeah, I heard you. (laughs) And then there's... Yes, I heard you. Giving diligent, focused attention to what was said. And then there's actually listening, and then there's doing and trusting, and actually taking the step of faith to do what you were told to be listeners and doers. The book of James gives us a similar lesson this way. James chapter 1, verse 22 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Here's the point. 
True trust means being hearers and doers of God's word. He says, hey, if you want to trust me, Israel, if you want to make your way through the wilderness, you're going to have to listen to me and actually do what I say. (laughs) If you're going to want to make your way through this, you're going to have to listen. They're going to have to trust God's power to save, and that meant hearing, but also doing. To not forget what they heard, to not be like the man who went to his reflection, then walked away and forgot what he looked like. To allow God to be in the driver's seat of our life, knowing that he has a far greater destination in mind. Some of us are fine with having God in the driver's seat of our life, as long as it's one of those driver's ed cars where there's a brake on the passenger side. Like, well, God, I'm going to stop you here. (laughs) I don't think you know where you're going or what you're doing. But friends, he has a far greater destination in mind. In fact, look where the Israelites end up at the end of the chapter. Exodus 15, verse 27. Look at this. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Friends, God brought them to Florida. (laughs) They were tested to trust God's power to save. And God, despite their grumbling, showed infinite grace and mercy to these rebels in the wilderness. And he brought them to what they needed. (laughs) But they had to trust him on the way. But the tests would continue because they weren't going to retire in Elam, in Florida here forever, right? They had to head back out into the wilderness. Look how the passage continues, chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin, which was between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. If you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They had to trust here, not simply God's power to save, but we see the second thing that they were tested in regards to God's trust. They had to trust God's provision each day. They had to not simply trust God was going to save them. They had to trust God was going to provide for them along the way. They begin to head out of Elam and into the wilderness of sin. Let me tell you something. I don't know a ton about the wilderness of sin, but that doesn't sound like a place I want to be caught by myself. (laughs) Right? Not a great place. Probably kind of a sketchy part of the desert. Right? But sometimes God will lead us through places like that so that we need to trust him, rely on his wisdom, and he will lead us through it. He might be leading us to go through it and to make sure we don't make a ton of stops. You know, we lock the doors and we just keep on going through and trusting him. We see that it's now the second month of the 15th day since they left Egypt, and they're now being tested with hunger. They were thirsty before, now they're hungry and they notice, and notice that they grumbled, and then they exaggerate. We never do this, do we? Verse 3 again, look at this. Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Friends, this is funny. (laughs) They long to go back to Egypt. They're like, hey, at least in, in slavery, I remember having meat pots to the full. I remember having all the bread I could eat. They began to exaggerate and they began to call slavery the good old days. They faced one trial and they're ready to go back to familiar suffering rather than endure unknown territory. Friends, we know this. In slavery, they didn't have meat pots to the full. (laughs) They didn't have bread all day long like they were at Olive Garden or something like that. They were slaves with hardly anything to eat. And their grumbling led them to lose perspective. They would rather have had scraps in slavery than trust God to lead them and provide for them in the wilderness of sin. They said, we believe God is bringing us out here to kill us. Even after he was super gracious to them so many times throughout this book. And friends, we got to remember, we are often like them. <laughs> God can redeem us from our sins through Jesus. He can provide for us in so many ways, turning the water sweet and providing for us day after day. Yet we are still tempted to believe that he has some evil purpose for us. That the path he is leading us on is actually leading to our death and not to our life. But for the child of God walking in the ways of God, every good and perfect gift comes from above. For the child of God walking in the ways of God, we can claim the promises of Romans 8.28 that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all things are going to work together for good. That your end destination is not the wilderness of sin. He's got somewhere He's taking you. And He's not leading you where He will not be with you. Look what the Lord said to Moses, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So God's going to provide bread for them. On the sixth day, they're going to gather twice as much. Let's continue. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. God promises to provide for them in the wilderness. And then even this provision would be somewhat of a test. Would they trust him? Because friends, trust involves not just believing God's word, but living God's way. Trust involves not just believing God's word, but also by living God's way. They're going to need to gather a day's portion on the sixth day, gather twice as much so that they could take a Sabbath day. God appears to his people in verse 9 to 12. And then we read this in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay across the camp. 
And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And the Lord said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So they see this kind of spread out, and they go, What is it? The Hebrew word for that is mana, which sounds like the word manna, right? That's where we get the word from. Is Basically, manna is simply saying, what is it? It looks good. Let's eat it. <laughs> and so they come, and we're going to read a little more about that later. But it was meant to be a regular reminder of God's provision. Verse 16, let's continue. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, when they gathered it with an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. I love this. Everybody got to eat as much as they wanted. This was infinite breadsticks before it was cool. They got exactly the amount of bread they needed to be full. They gathered what they needed. They were using a measurement called an omer, which we're told at the end of the passage is a tenth of an ephah, which again doesn't mean much to us. But what an omer is, is about two liters. They had these giant containers of about two liters. where They were able to gather as much of this bread. This was a lot of bread that they needed in order to eat and to make the way. This is a lot of quail and bread sandwiches, right? I imagine they made little chicken minis from Chick-fil-A out of this, right? That's what I imagine this looking like. So the people had to trust the Lord for their daily provision, and they were also just to gather for their daily needs. Verse 19, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning, no leftovers. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. They couldn't store up for themselves treasures of bread and quail. They had to gather for their daily needs. God had even instituted a rest day, Sabbath, to go, hey, you need to not gather on this day, and you need to make plans ahead of time so that you will not gather on this day. Look at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Here's the principle. This is an important principle illustrated for us. We see the Sabbath command before it's ever given in Exodus 20. You know, commandment number four, keep a Sabbath day to the Lord. Here we see sort of a preview of it before he gives that command. And we're going to get to the Ten Commandments eventually and open up some of the implications of what this command 
is. But the, the ultimate principle for all of us is that we're made to work and gather, but we're also made to rest. And the principle as it relates to trust is this. We are not trusting God if we will not rest. We are not trusting God if we will not rest. We are not the ones who uphold the world. You were not made to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Friends, some of us are miserable because we don't simply, we don't think we can turn off the phone for 24 hours and just rest. And I don't think that means complete inactivity. There are activities you can do that will bring rest and vibrancy to your soul. And friends, we need to rest. God provided the Sabbath rest to the people as an act of kindness. He didn't want them to work every day. And he wanted to give them a reminder that they were not God. That's what the Sabbath does, is tell you that you are not the one who will exist all the time and uphold the universe by the word of your power. Friends, do you rest? Could you even take a whole day off? In this world, friends, the Sabbath is unpopular and frankly very difficult. Friends, we're expected to take phone calls every moment of every day, aren't we? Even sometimes when we're off the clock, people will just call us, text us, and they're wanting a response like that. The Sabbath isn't meant to be some legalistic chain to go, well, you know, if you're going to do that, you know, Jesus goes on to talk about in the New Testament how, hey, if, you see, if your cow falls in a pit on the Sabbath, go get it. Do what you need to do. Do acts of mercy and necessity. He's not saying to just sit around and let everybody go hungry because you need your day off, right? But he is saying to remember that this is a gracious command to find your rest and your trust in God. To trust His provision. And that might mean to plan ahead and to work ahead in order to take a day of rest. And friends, the nation of Israel, long before cell phones and tight work deadlines, struggled with this command. So consider how much harder this is for us. And friends, I think when we talk about the Sabbath, we also need to think about maybe we need to stop looking at what other people are doing and just scrolling for a day. Maybe we're miserable because not only are we out working all the time, but we're also looking at other people and what they're doing all the time, and it makes us miserable. Look at verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. So they went ahead and did it anyway. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. They went out and they're sent back home. Rest displayed trust in God's daily provision. And Exodus 16 really does illustrate for us the famous words of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. This is what it looks like. Yes, to work and to gather daily and to work hard. I don't think this was an easy thing to gather all of this bread. But also to rest. 
God provided rest for His people. And He didn't just do it once. The passage tells us that the people named the bread manna. It was like a wafer, probably with some honey on it. They collected some and they put it into the tabernacle when they built the tabernacle as a regular reminder of that rest. And we read verse 35. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God provided daily for them for 40 years. They didn't stock up. They didn't build up treasures and storehouses. They trusted God for his daily provision. Do we? Would we say that we trust God for his daily provision? I was encouraged this week. I got sent a message from a young man in our church and he wanted to share, he was reading uh, in the Bible a word that he, he was like, man, I really would love to share this with everybody. And I just wanted to share it with you and maybe you'd share it with everybody. And little known to me, he didn't know what I was prepping to preach on today. And he said, I really think this verse is so relevant to people this weekend. It's here, Matthew six thirty four. Look at this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, he didn't know anything about what I was preaching on this weekend, and I was sitting there going, man, he's preaching my sermon for me. (laughs) Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Friends, the wilderness story is a lesson for us. God will provide for you. Sure, we got to be willing and diligent to gather what's in front of us. I, I don't want this to be an invitation to go, well, you know, pastor said God's going to provide me. I'm just going to lay at home and not do nothing. Because he also says in another book, he who doth not work doth not eat. <laughs> right? But he does say, friends, I'm going to, if, if you go and gather, I'm going to make sure there's enough there for you. It's an invitation to trust. Let me even say a word. Sometimes we think about the Sabbath only when it comes to a nine-to-five job. But wives, mothers, those who work at home, you need a Sabbath too. Tell the husband, it's my Sabbath off. Go do some dishes. Or just let the dishes pile up. Nobody's at your house. Right? This is for everybody, whether, again, you work a typical nine to five or whatever, whether you work at home, believe me, if you're a stay-at-home mom and wife, you work very, very, very hard. (laughs) Take a Sabbath. Trust. God's going to get the dishes taken care of. God's going to get everything the way it needs to. It's an illustration for us to trust. And finally, third, this teaches us to trust God's gospel for salvation. God saved his people in order that they might trust him, to trust his power to save them and to trust his provision day to day. He's not just going to save them once and leave them in the wilderness. He's going to get them home. And friends, this is an illustration for us as we trust the gospel for salvation. I don't have time for us to look at John chapter 6, which our worship team actually read at the start of the service. I'd encourage you to go home and look at it. It is 71 verses. 
But in John chapter 6, Jesus begins to multiply bread for the crowds. And it's one of his signs he performed in the Gospel of John. And the people are amazed. And he takes the opportunity from this sign to preach to the people. And he stood in the synagogue of Capernaum. And the crowds came to him. And here's what Jesus said. John 6, 31 to 35. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven to give life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread. And then Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The manna from heaven pointed forward toward Jesus. Here's the point. God provided the manna by sending it from heaven to satisfy the hunger of the people. But God sent his son from heaven to earth that he might meet the greatest need of his people, the salvation from sin. In fact, Jesus goes on to say that the bread is a symbol for his flesh given for the life of the world. And the people in Jesus' day respond just like the people in the wilderness do. It's almost like people don't change over time. John 6, 41. Look at this. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And look at Jesus' response, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Many didn't believe Jesus' words. And verse 60 actually tells us that, that the disciples were grumbling and that some even turned away from following him. Because trust is hard. Trust is a test. And many in the the wilderness failed the test. Many in Jesus' day did as well. But God has redeemed his people in order that we might trust him. Friends, he has the power to save. He can make the bitter water in front of you sweet. He's able to meet our daily provision and give us all that we need. And to trust, ultimately, his son to save. He is the bread of life. This is one of Jesus' I am statements, that he is not simply telling us that he is the one that we need, but that he is the I am of the book of Exodus, and that he is God come to save us, that the baby in a manger would be the one who would satisfy our every longing and our every need, and he would give himself for the life of the world. And he would rise again from the dead so that we could have everlasting life. And he pictures faith as eating. Friends, I don't know if you realize this, but you've got to have a lot of faith to eat what somebody hands you. And you take it and you trust 
and you bring it within you. That's what faith is. We take what God has promised and we put it inside of us, believing it and trusting that it is true. Friends, grumblers are nothing new. But friends, neither is God's grace to grumblers. Friends, this is good news because God doesn't give up on you just because you grumble. And he's going to take you through the wilderness toward a new and a greater destination. And friends, as we come this Sunday to the table of the Lord's Supper, to the bread of his flesh and to drink of his blood, may we put aside our grumbling and trust that the God of all grace will bring us through the wilderness and all the way home. The Lord's Supper is open to any today who are trusting in Jesus for their eternal provision, who are trusting in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection to save them for their sins, and who are following him today. This table is open for them to take and to remind as we take the bread and the cup and as we sit and reflect before we take it together, to just think about Jesus' words in John 6 and to think about the way that God has done everything we need to restore us to God. And so today, if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you today to use this as a time to turn to God in faith, to believe in the one who has come to save us from our sins, who's come from heaven to earth, and to eat of the bread of life and find him to be your eternal hope and satisfaction. May we take, prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper together. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your goodness, for your kindness toward us. Lord, thank you for providing daily for what we need. Thank you for giving us bread to eat. Thank you for giving us the bread of heaven, ultimately, who has come that we might have eternal life and eternal satisfaction in you. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who does not know you, who has not placed their hope and their trust and their faith in you, Lord, that in these moments they would. They would see the Lord's Supper as an invitation to trust you as their Lord and their Master and their Savior, as their only hope in this world. Lord, I ask and pray that as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, you would prepare our hearts you would humble us and again help us just to see how trustworthy you are and your incredible provision for our life we ask and we pray all these things in jesus name amen
next destination. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We have made a habit or a practice of doing the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month in order that we might get a second sermon. This is a proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. A proclamation that the bread of life has come and that any can come and eat and find everlasting life in him. We close the service with a benediction, with a blessing as we head out into the world. Friends, I want to remind you that as you go, there are people around you who may have lots of physical food, but who are beggars for the spiritual food, who are beggars for the bread of life. And then we're all simply beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread that satisfies for everlasting life. This is our benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Amen.